Good afternoon and welcome back to Dark Histories from the Secret University. A very special episode today to celebrate the 79th birthday of Keith Richards, taking us back to surely the most explosive and important week in the summer of love 1967 and arguably the most explosive and important and in many ways surreal week in the whole of the 1960s the few days when the long-running skirmish of opposing storm fronts the new generation versus the old establishment finally collided in a glorious thunderstorm and war of the classes, generations and ideologies. We begin here on the 27th of June. The police usher bellowed for silence, but could not and never would still an undercurrent of female anguish, like the constant soft rustle of tissue paper or chocolate box wrappings. The beginning of the Redlands drugs trial in Chichester County Court featuring Robert Fraser, Old Etonian, uh, a very interesting art dealer of the period, uh, also known as Groovy Bob, featuring, of course, Mick Jagger uh, and Keith Richards, and featuring also, by proxy, as it were, uh, Marianne Faithful, uh, who was represented by a rabbit fur rug. You really could not make this up. Let's go back a few days uh, before we get there to uh, the beginning of this week, the 25th of June. Let's imagine here a piece of absolutely improbable science fiction. Four young men are given the biggest ever global television audience in history to do with what they will. Well, let's make a tremendous amount of money, shall we? Let's just think about how we can strategize this global window of opportunity what they actually do is this john lennon writes a song with lyrics designed to be uh, comprehensible to the largest possible global audience and they stand up in a studio filled with various rock luminaries from the who and the rolling stones and they sing all you need is love actually fucking happened think of it now in the festering revolting mess of brexit britain and it's nicely summed up really by paul mccartney who would say much later i think in the 90s to his friend and biographer barry miles one of the best historians of the 1960s he was right there McCartney would say, the 60s doesn't seem to me like a decade in the past. It seems to me like a decade in the future waiting to happen. To get to the root, perhaps, of the fury that had been simmering uh, through the establishment from uh, the 1950s, in fact, we need to go back to 1956. And there's a beautiful kind of split screen image for us here. One is the Suez crisis, where the 
Old Etonian Prime Minister and Conservative Anthony Eden completely loses the battle and the whole thing marks uh, a radical uh, humiliation of the old deluded British Empire. The other side of the split screen is Keith Richards under his bed covers uh, late at night trying desperately to tune into a stable frequency of the hopelessly unstable Radio Luxembourg, the only good signal is said to be in the north of England, wondering just what an earth he is listening to and it is Elvis Presley and Heartbreak Hotel. It was the following year, 1957, that Colin McInnes gave the world the first of his trilogy uh, of absolute beginners novels and in it he patented if you like something we now take for granted but that was very strange unknown and indeed frightening to thousands if not millions of parents across middle America and middle England and that was the teenager uh, unknown unheard of mentioned briefly by Kerouac a few years earlier but really patented by McInnes as this sharp uh, suited mobile on a moped uh, kid with disposable income and a very very clear cut uh, buzzing new identity we go on to 1960 when the establishment takes on uh, Lady Chatterley uh, my old uh, Leeds lecturer Rory McTurk. McTurk remembered having one of his Cambridge tutorials cancelled because the tutor Helen Gardner was actually in court for this. The uh, prosecution of course lost the case against Lady Chatterley kicking off uh, the decade there in 1960 and interesting detail which was noted by Rory McTurk and Helen Gardner both was that the passages which were actually about anal sex in the novel went completely under the radar of the prosecution which of course could have had a field day with them uh, homosexuality itself was was illegal still at this point uh, and this was simply too dark and incomprehensible and unthinkable for them to actually see what was right under their uh, old Etonian noses one of the most notorious and comic remarks of the prosecuting QC now uh, was the question to the jury is this a novel which you would be comfortable having your servants read and things pushed on uh, to of course 1963 and 64 the profumo scandal in which a working class good time girl Christine Keeler uh, brought down Profumo uh, and subsequently, almost certainly as a result, brought down the Conservative government of Douglas Home uh, so that Labour won the election and the 60s was really getting underway with a radical new government as well as a radical new culture. Just what were the crimes that were really committed by the Rolling Stones uh, to Push, Jagger, Richards and Groovy Bob, Robert Fraser, into the dock. Richards captures an awful lot of the queasy revolution in the head that was going on uh, at this time uh, when he talks about the bacchic frenzy of teenage girls at gigs. You can hear this still, of course, uh, 
on live recordings of the Stones and the Beatles. And he sums it up uh, with typically pithy uh, precision in wonderful memoir, one of the best ever oral histories, Richard's life, when he says, I never was in fear of my life like I was from teenage girls. I would rather be in the trenches fighting the enemy. Uh, he gives one vivid case at an early Stones gig when, uh, as he says, their two main concerns for the whole gig were simply getting in there safely and getting out of there safely. And on one occasion, he did not. Uh, a couple of girls had hold of him and were strangling him with a necklace when he grabbed for the door of the getaway car with the other stones inside the handle came off in his hand and a few moments later he woke up uh, to find that he'd fainted under the strangulation the stones in i think it was perhaps 67 in america uh, were so heavily mobbed by teenage girls hundreds on top of their car that the roof of the car would actually have caved in if they hadn't held it up with their feet uh, as Richards again recalls, sometimes at gigs in the early days, they simply played Popeye the Sailor Man for fun because nobody could hear what they were playing anyway. Uh, interesting kind of assistance from the establishment at times was them being led out of gigs by the police. And at one point, uh, as a new measure to escape safely, being led out across the rooftops, unfortunately, uh, the bobbies got lost and it then started to rain my own kind of very early memory of this war of the generations going on i was born in uh, may 1969 to the sound of get back which i didn't heed being 10 days late already but as i grew up in the early 70s the very first uh, to call it loosely pop record i ever heard was the freewheeling bob dylan and Songs like Girl from the North Country, Blowing in the Wind, uh, Masters of War, particularly chilling thing for a six-year-old boy to listen to and don't think twice it's all right, uh, burn themselves into my bones before I even knew what pop music was. The other nominal pop record we had in our house at this period, there really were only two, was The Sound of Music. Well, get this, uh, an interesting fact for pop pickers from May 1963 until early 1968, there were only five acts which ever made the top of the albums charts in Britain. They were The Beatles, The Stones, Bob Dylan, The Monkeys, and yup, The Sound of Music. So you can virtually hear uh, that War of the Generations going on. Uh, over one record player in one household. Cut this down to 1967 and the whole bizarre, extraordinary affair of the Redlands trial kicks off uh, in February at the Sussex home of Keith Richards. Uh, nice little detail about what life was like uh, in the freewheeling 1960s, Richards actually was looking for one particular house in Sussex, um, drove up by a mistake to the wrong house, asked uh, 
do you know where X house is? Uh, well, yeah, I do, but this one's for sale as well. So it was that Richards raced off to get to the bank in time, which of course closed about three o'clock in those days, came back with all the money in cash and bought Redlands. And in February 1967, uh, there was a little house party going on uh, with lots of splendid acid and dope. Uh, the acid provided by Dave, the acid king, Schneiderman, uh, and also in attendance was uh, Marianne Faithful, uh, Robert Fraser, and uh, a character who would later be referred to as Robert Fraser's Moroccan servant. What's funny about this is that the prosecution again missed an important detail. Uh, in fact, he was Fraser's servant and lover. Here we are in 67 with homosexuality still illegal, incredibly, in Britain. A few weeks later, Brian Jones's London flat is busted on 10th of May. And as Richards points out, there's a small giveaway detail about the setup behind the scenes uh, as the press arrives at the bust before the police. So the week begins on the 25th of June 1967 with that surreal science fiction uh, event of All You Need Is Love where Mick Jagger is lounging about on the floor uh, in a lovely silk shirt with psychedelic eyes smoking a fat joint for the delectation of the possibly 400 million global viewers and trying not to think about what's coming to him uh, in Chichester Court just uh, a few hours later. Well, they seemed to get them all initially, but it certainly appeared that Richards was the greatest prey uh, of all of them and in their eyes had committed the greatest crime. The judge, Leslie Block, goaded him beyond endurance throughout the trial, uh, describing him as filth and scum, so that Richards was losing his patience by the time he was put in the dock before the old Etonian QC, Malcolm Morris, on 29th of June 1967. Here we are with one of the most famous courtroom exchanges of the 20th century Morris against Richards. Would you agree in the ordinary course of events you would expect a young woman to be embarrassed if she had nothing on but a rug in the presence of eight men two of whom were hangers-on and a third a Moroccan servant. Not at all. Regard that do you as quite normal? We're not old men. We're not worried about petty morals. Bang, a year in prison for Keith Richards, uh, who did in fact spend one night in Wormwood Scrubs, where he seems to have made quite good friends with a lot of the inmates. Well, that was the 29th, jumping ahead to the last day in this extraordinary week. This is 1967, so it has to be another toff who saves the working class lads. And it was, in fact, Baron Rees-Mogg, William Rees-Mogg. 
who risked contempt of court as editor of the Times when on 1st of July he published the famous editorial Who Breaks a Butterfly on a Wheel, arguing that the sentences uh, imposed on Jagger and Richards and Fraser were in fact uh, persecution. Let's dive in a little bit now to the person of Marianne Faithful and the fur rug. Uh, part of the divine black comedy of the trial was the fact that uh, people were fascinated by Marianne Faithful having been discovered by the police, uh, who waited apparently until uh, George Harrison left because you couldn't possibly bust the Beatles, um, who had MBEs by this time. But the fact of Marianne Faithful being discovered by the police naked except for a fur rug, she's apparently just taken a bath uh, and then being taken upstairs by a female police officer and asked to drop the fur rug. This titillated uh, and fascinated Middle England uh, and the whole courtroom beyond belief to the extent that Havers, the defending QC uh, for the Stones and Jagger had to constantly hold up the fur rug uh, in court to make it clear to the good burghers of uh, Chichester that this was actually modest feminine uh, attire for a young lady. But things get far more surreal still when somehow a rumour goes zipping around the length of Britain that not only was Marianne Faithful naked except for a fur rug, uh, but that she had been found masturbating with a Mars bar. As Richards points out, there were Mars bars lying about because acid gave people a sudden sugar low and they wanted to munch on these. Uh, but as he also points out, how did anyone ever uh, first off, invent this mad idea, and secondly, believe it to the extent that Private Eye would shortly publish uh, a nudge-nudge, wink-wink edition with the headline, A Mars Bar Fills That Gap. Here's Richards. How the Mars Bar got into the story, I don't know. There was one on the table. There were a couple because on acid suddenly you get sugar lack and you're munching away. And so she's stuck forever with the story of where the police found that Mars bar. And you have to say she wears it well. So they had a woman police officer who took her upstairs and made her drop the rug. What else do you want to see from there? It shows you what's in people's minds. The evening paper headlines are naked girl at Stone's party, info directly from the police. But the Mars bar is a dildo. That's rather a large leap. The weird thing about these myths is that they stick when they're so obviously false. Perhaps the idea is that it's so outlandish or crude or prurient that it can't have been invented. Imagine allowing a group of policemen uh, and women to see this evidence, keeping it on display as they came tramping through the house. Excuse me, officer, I think you may have missed something. Over here. So things did not look good in the middle of the summer of love for Jagger and Richards uh, and Fraser. But by the 1st of July, the uh, crucial article by Rhys Mogg was in uh, and the delightful rumour about a Mars bar was simmering in the dark and bewildered minds of respectable folk 
uh, across the land. Uh, and it's here really just one little detail in the whole mad folklore of, of the Redlands affair gives you that shocking insight into the twisted minds of good middle-class uh, conservatives that they actually could manage to conjure and sustain this wild idea that in fact they were actually enjoying all this uh, and they were actually resentful of the fact they weren't allowed to enjoy it more openly, openly as their sons and daughters seem to be doing to a worrying extent. Well, Richards rightly points out there was something fishy about Brian Jones being busted when the press turned up before the police in May 1967. Uh, but there was something, in fact, much fishier about the whole affair as Philip Norman, the Stones biographer and biographer of Mick Jagger, would point out in 2012 what on earth had happened to Dave the Acid King Schneiderman. Where was this guy uh, who did not end up in court or get charged for anything? The story, in fact, went like this. Sometime before the Redlands bust, Schneiderman had himself been busted at Heathrow for possession of drugs. Uh, he'd been taken into a room with some very heavy people and told that if he cooperated and did what they instructed, he could go free. Uh, hence the presence of Schneiderman and his tip-off at Redlands. Uh, and the very heavy people, it's said by Norman, were in fact uh, a double act of the MI5, uh, of MI5 and the FBI. As Richards would also state in uh, his memoir later on, uh, look at these people, they won two world wars and they're quaking in their boots. Did they even really know what it was they were afraid of? Well, if a film of this delightful affair ever gets made, it has to leap out of that week uh, to a month later when the appeal verdict was heard and almost certainly due to uh, the intervention of Rhys Mogg. Jagger and Richards were let free. Fraser, unfortunately, was not and would spend quite some time in prison. But uh, a very young, bold, uh, then that time unknown BBC producer named John Burt took a gamble with the uh, outcome of the appeal. It was a kind of carnival scenario going on outside the court, apparently. I think there was a, a silkscreen printer with um, Free the Stones merchandise going, along with lots of kids with portable record players. Uh, and Burt gambled that Jagger was going to be let free. Uh, got the call right, whisked Jagger and Marianne Faithful out into a car, which was apparently driven by a stunt driver at tremendous speed, uh, to a helicopter in which poor old Bert sat, I think, in the front, trying to ignore what was going on between Marianne Faithful and Mick Jagger, who were really discovering one another for the first time. They were all taken to a stately home, or a minor stately home uh, in Essex where uh, Jagger and F Faithful continued their mutual self-discovery uh, up in one of the bedrooms until a timid Bert had to knock on the door and politely ask Jagger to come down uh, before the cameras with, I think it was the Bishop of Woolwich uh, and Rhys Mogg. Uh, and uh, 
The final victory goes to Jagger, looking understandably uh, relaxed uh, and quite philosophic uh, about how people should be prosecuted for crimes and not for the fears of people which are actually groundless. And uh, this may have glanced for some people at the wonderful ongoing saga of Marianne Faithful and the Mars Bar. So there we have it, the summer of love uh, in all its surreal glory and a wonderful moment in a decade of glorious meritocracy where I think it was uh, Terence Stamp or Michael Caine, I can't quite remember who, uh, but said that everybody I knew uh, became famous. There was a young grammar school lad, son of a gym teacher, Mick Jagger, who by 1968 had as his accountant, Prince Rupert, of Liechtenstein and just exactly as the appeal uh, verdict came in and Jagger went flitting off in a helicopter we had All You Need Is Love at number one and until December uh, that year Sergeant Peppers could be heard uh, at number one all across Britain uh, just occasionally being tussled off the top spot by uh, a resilient sound of music. This has been a special edition of Dark Histories, a very dark one indeed in some ways, from the Secret University for Keith Richards. Happy birthday, Keith, 18th of December, ever young at 79.